Good evening, everyone. Good evening. This is Danny Haifong for a special Friday night episode of Cold War Brew. I'll let people come in. I'm actually going to grab water. I forgot to do that. Hope you're all doing well this evening. Apologies. There was an episode last week having some unfortunate issues with editing. There was a troll in the comments. I'm unable to get it out of the transcript, meaning I'm unable to get it out of the uh, the episode. So that episode is not published uh, publicly just yet. But uh, apologies, there has been less consistency here with the podcast. A lot of things have been happening uh, in life. Uh, Try to take a break was one of those things. And, of course, streaming is picking up and trying to stick to the writing as well. So things have been a little less consistent over this way. And I want to apologize for all of those who are loyal to this show, Cold War Brew. But nonetheless, I still try to get this in weekly for all of you so we can have the interactive chats on uh, this, what I think is uh, the question on the order of the day for the global working class movement. With that said, though, please do enter the queue. If you have any comments, questions, subjects that you would like to discuss. Um, And uh, last night, I was streaming about two things. And I'll just kind of briefly go over what I had to say about each thing. As you know, everyone is talking about the death of Queen Elizabeth II. That is uh, has been a pleasant surprise. You know, I had the impression, I was talking to a friend about this, uh, had the impression that uh, Queen Elizabeth and the British crown, the monarchy, had this kind of celebrity allure that there was this kind of larger than life um, kind of treatment of the queen and of, of the monarchy in general. And it's been really good to see people, uh, you know, to see people from across the world, uh, you know, see oppressed people everywhere, really using this moment to remind people exactly what this system is all about and exactly what the monarchy represents brutal colonialism imperialism of course even in its modern form but i already have two callers in the queue so let's not waste any time let's have a conversation and i can tie in some of these topics as we go along so uh jay you were the first caller in the queue and you can now speak Uh, you're still Hi there. Good. How about that? Hi there. Yes, you're good. Thank you so much. I just wanted to um, give appreciation for, of course, all your work, uh, especially though my focus is on renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And you did a great segment where you talked about China's investments in that and uh, that they are by far the leader in both solar, wind, and electrical uh, transportation. And one of my frustrations is that many of my favorite um, 
journalists on the left, such as Max Blumenthal, Oliver Stone. Uh, I know you have a, a thing with Jackson Hinkle, but he also seems to be going that direction. Um, and uh, there is just, uh, there's a debate where it seems that I think in reaction to the uh, WEF and all the banking institutions that are talking about a green revolution, in my opinion, they're a the march and trying to mislead us in the sense of having, uh, forcing issues around um, false solutions such as nuclear, blue hydrogen, uh, clean coal, and um, having uh, control over natural processes, uh, doing a net zero, as opposed to real solutions that you will find from who I've been recommending to them, um, prof- uh, Stanford professor Mark Jacobson, who him and other colleagues have laid out the science for well over 10 years on the feasibility of 100% wind, water, and sun for all purposes, largely solar and wind. No new hydro is necessary, just existing hydro. There are We have about 95% of the existing technology to do the solutions to get off of fossil fuels. And there is a strange, you know, as you were talking about the uh, patriotic socialism debate and how uh, Jackson seems to be toning to the right, maybe maybe to get some cred with them. In the process, there is, unfortunately, unfortunately, in my view, a lack of understanding of the science and therefore being, uh, and also Whitney Webb is involved in this too, of not really understanding the need and the benefit to working class people. Eight million deaths occur every year from air pollution, a million in China, a million in India. And uh, half of that is from fossil fuels. The other half is from burning wood in the kitchen and so forth. So I just want to appreciate what you're doing and hopefully reach out to them so that we have an understanding. This is, you know, it's less concentrated energy. Uh, any home, any tiny little building can have solar panels. The Amish use solar panels. It doesn't disrupt their culture. And uh, so it's a very complex debate. Everybody's saying oh, we, you know, we need to do fossil fuels. Even Elon Musk, who, in my opinion, has been doing real science. Ben Norton is critical of them. Their approach, I think, has been reasonable. I'm not saying billionaires are good, but I just want to make sure that journalists who are not versed in the science get a little bit more versed in it. It's a very complex science, and it's very controversial and easily to do people. So anyways, there's my last comments. Well, thanks for your, your comments. I mean, yeah, like I actually haven't been following this kind of work from uh, the journalists and the analysts and, and, and those they mentioned. Um, I try to, you know, work with anyone I can on things that we agree on. But when it comes to this kind of content, I tr- I generally try. I'm, sometimes I get pulled in. Sometimes people want my opinion on things like with RBN. Of course, I'm not going to l- withhold my opinion just be, uh, uh, if they want to have a conversation about it. But I, but I do think that there are some of these topics, right? This world, the way that the World Economic Forum, all of that has been so um, hyper focused upon, as if it 
is some kind of new i heard this i don't know where i heard this it might have been on jackson from jackson on his rbn conversation but he said that it's more than capitalism and i just did not understand what that is even is supposed to mean i think what people kind of hearken to and conclude is that the world economic forum and davos and their agenda etc is some kind of like uh real shift to fascism and now you know i've read over the mission statement of the world economic forum the davos manifesto the fourth industrial revolution none of it sounds like fascism it sounds actually what it sounds like is what happens when monopoly capital runs into a really terminal crisis which does contain elements of fascism it does contain uh, the drift to fascism, and you could argue that the drift is kind of with us now. Well, the United States uh, and its capitalist system have uh, very much uh, many features of fascism. But for me, <laughs> this in and of itself is not fascism. It's not something new. It's not something incredibly uh, controversial. I don't see any a real gotcha here. I, I see it as what happens when you have multiple crises that threaten the legitimacy of capital and you have capital trying to figure out how to manage them to their benefit. So a lot, of course, uh, there's going to be a large section of the of the capitalist class that's going to want to get ahead of green technology, that's going to want to try to profit from it, privatize it, monopolize it, concentrate it, within its uh, market share, all of that. You're going to have that, and you're going to have a huge propaganda campaign uh, as well, because as you said, Jay, there's consequences to this. I mean, there is a a Cold War happening over this issue. Uh, I mean, you mentioned China and my segment on China. A big reason why why capitalists are so concerned about this is because they see China as employing it differently. They see China as using the state as a mechanism to fuel this growth in ways that the capitalist countries, the Western imperialists, the United States leading them, none of them want to do that. And so, yeah, I I agree with you. I think we should be having conversations about this topic in a way that talks about it not in this like, oh, all greening and the you know climate change is some kind of just a straight up imperialist uh, dogma you used against uh, poor and oppressed nations that is one side of it but for me i'm a dialectical materialist I, there's not one side of anything you know there's always contradictions and on the other side of the contradiction is that and i agree with you again that I believe from what I've seen in China, what I've seen Cuba do with its minimal resources, that there is a capacity to use renewable energy and to employ it in a way that will move us forward to preserving ecology and also rehabilitating it. That can happen. So I think that there is a lot of narrowness that happens around this topic. And I think some of that is because we do live in the most corrupt, concentrated oligarchy. Maybe that's, I, I think that's ever existed really in history. And after COVID-19, after multiple economic crises in the last few years alone, uh, 
the, the, the economic situation worsening, and of course, the unhinged imperialist foreign policy, which includes many actual conspiracy theories like Russiagate and, you know, the China quote unquote threat and all this stuff. I think that has taken a real toll on politics. And, and so I do hope that we can wrestle this issue of climate change away from the right. And, and we have to, uh, you know, we really do have to do this. <laughs> like, like it is really important. And I, you know, I don't, I don't always have the ability to cover it all of the time, but I really do appreciate you bringing it up. Um, I'm going to move on to Schnarf. Uh, um, I just want to say, if you have comments, you know, please two minutes. Um, we can have a back and forth. Of course, you can stay in the queue. Um, and I, after I get to the callers, I usually try to circle back. Um, but okay, Schnarf. Uh, <laughs> You are next. Hey, what's up? Hi. Um, I I have a quick question, and I wanted to pick your brain about it. Um, So we we constantly hear about the, quote-unquote, Uyghur genocide. But if you actually have some kind of an ethnic genocide, there's usually some some common things that happen, like migration. You have uh, displacement, and you it it looks a lot different than what's happening, at least with what we see in China. So I'm wondering. To what degree can you speak on that we can compare something like what's happening uh, in in with the Uyghurs in comparison to like the Rohingya, for example, who you could see directly displaced? You have direct evidence of of genocide taking place, and you know because the United States really cares about Muslim people, you know they they've basically done jack shit to 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 resolve that, considering that they have their hands all over. Um, Myanmar to begin with. What I want to know is is that like what's the what is what is the contrary evidence to to suggest that the genocide is not a genocide? And you mentioned dialectical materialism a second ago. At what point does something um, quantitative become qualitative? What I mean by that is at what point is there some kind of a conflict or issue internally that then would be qualified as, as genocide, right? So like, I understand if there's like some kind of a internal issue in China in this Western province with a certain ethnic group, but at what point would it be considered genocide? And I figure you'd be a good person to ask and, and, and just kind of pick your brain as to what you think is really taking place. And by the way, ding dong, the queen is dead. Yay. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thanks. Thanks for your question. It's a good one. It's a good one. It really ties into, uh, you know, what I hope to review, which is this UN report um, that came out. Well, it's not a U. It's an office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN, uh, which was headed by Michelle Bachelet now no longer, but it was released on her last day. Technically, in some parts of the world, including uh, Geneva, Switzerland, it was released the day after. So there a lot of suspicious things around this report. But the, um, the question that you had about genocide, what's interesting about this report is that it now we're, it, you know, it was released September 1st, August 31st, 2022. We've been talking about Uyghur 
genocide. This has been an allegation that's come up arguably since 2018, 2019. And I think the the narrative around it has really intensified in the last few years. So what's interesting about this report is that there's not one mention of genocide. Uh, there's not one mention of genocide. There's not one mention of cultural genocide, right? All these different iterations. And I was on Kim Iverson's program recently to talk about this. And, and I think it ties back into this report. It, and we talked about how this narrative is constantly changing. And so the word genocide, actually, when it's used in this context, especially from Western detractors, critics, uh, and those forces, many of them elite forces that have a huge vested interest in this, uh, they are not using the word with any meaning. They don't have any intention in actually putting together right, the, the evidence to the definition of genocide. So you know, in this situation, right, when it comes to this internal, we we want to call it internal conflict. At this moment, I mean, it's been six years, there hasn't really been an internal conflict in Xinjiang for more than six years. Uh, There were many of these uh, violent attacks that could very well be characterized as terrorist attacks by the UN's own definition. And so that that was occurring for over a decade, and a lot of people died, and there was a response. Uh, some people call it de-radicalization, de-radicalization program. Uh, it was a kind of a far-reaching response that focused on what the report had huge issues with and what a lot of detractors and critics, these elite forces, have issue with, which are the vocational educational training centers uh, that are deemed to be these quote-unquote concentration camps, and they're deemed to be kind of the vehicle for genocide, right? This targeting of Uyghurs ethnically to try to rid them. First, it was just straight-up genocide, right? And then it was pretty obvious that there wasn't especially the elimination aspect. There was no elimination of Uyghur people in China at all. That wasn't happening. You couldn't prove it with population. You couldn't prove it with anything. Any kind of standard of living, any indicator of that, you couldn't prove it. There was absolutely no proof. They couldn't make up the proof for it, none of these forces. So they moved on to cultural genocide. Well, the de-radicalization program says if you're a Muslim... If you're a Uyghur Muslim, then you're going to have to make all of these changes in order to satisfy the government, which means you are having your faith and your culture attacked. And even that has been dropped by these forces because it's quite obvious that the counter campaign, right, not just people like myself, but there are many others, even people from Xinjiang who have now been censored and silenced all across social media and YouTube, etc., who have said, no, I practice Islam. There's mosques everywhere. Just go. Right? You had Radio Free Asia literally trying to uh, videotape people in Kashgar dancing. Right, Many people practicing their traditional uh, Muslim faith dancing during Eid Mubarak. And they were trying to paint that as some kind of forced dance, some kind of forced uh, display from the government. I mean, it's only gotten more and more ridiculous. So in this case, you know, when we ask, when we think about, well, what then, what then would be constituted a genocide 
in this particular situation? I think that's a hard question to answer because really the forces that are making the allegation continue to, whether it's the Office of the High Commissioner for the Human Rights, for Human Rights at the UN, whether it's uh, all of the ASBI, Adrian Zenz, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Xinjiang Database, you know, all the various forces in the lead of this. And then, of course, all the politicians in the West, in the United States, the media, the corporate media, all of these forces that are making these allegations continue to commit what are really huge self-owns. I mean, to me, there's nothing more of a self-own than publishing a 48-page report. I mean, we're talking about, I didn't do the entire word count, but I'm guessing there's at least 500 to 1,000 words on each page. When you're talking about that many words, tens of thousands of words, writing that and absolutely having no evidence to your claims. All you have are 40 anonymous interviews that you refuse to quote. You refuse to talk about how you sampled, who, how you did the research. You, you, I talked about this on my stream yesterday. The research methodology is probably the worst you will find. You will, there is no way you could present this paper at any institution, educational institution in the world and expect anything other than a failing grade. It is pathetic. There's no uh, acknowledgement of bias. There's no attention to detail. There's no transcripts. There's no questionnaires. There's no uh, uh, sections on how this research was conducted. It's just we just talked to 40 people, and they all live abroad, and they consider themselves Uyghurs and Kazakhs, and that's it. Literally, you could just make that up. I could literally go. I could literally plagiar, make a write a paper saying I did this, and that's it. So we had. So there's nothing more of a cell phone than doing that three months later, after the very high commissioner for human rights <laughs> at this, the office of the high commissioner of human rights, the very commissioner Michelle Bachelet literally visited for five days. May 23rd to May 28th came out the statement. She talked to people who were in the vocational education training centers, the VETCs. She spoke to officials. She spoke to civil society. She spoke to these words. And it was only five days. Sure, not a long trip. But she did this. And they didn't, not only did they not cite it, they didn't even mention it. They didn't mention that this happened at all. And so I think when it comes to the possibility of genocide in this case, it really is up to those making the allegations to prove it. Nothing has been proven. Uh, every indicator, social indicator, says the exact opposite of genocide, right? Whether it's the relaxing of the one-child policy, which was always relaxed for Uyghurs, but now it's three-child policy for everybody, whether it's looking at things like life expectancy, whether it's looking at things like standard of living and income, wages, right? All of these things that, and then you look at population. Um, and then you look at the fact that culturally Uyghurs are practicing Islam. There's tens of, there's more than 20,000 mosques there to do so. It, it doesn't make much sense. And we can't even find, as you said, these uh, other factors, right? This mass migration. All you have are 
exiles, right? Exiles who are all connected. They all find their way, right? Whether we're talking about Chusurne, um Ziawudin, who was paraded by Democracy Now! And, you know, um, she was a part of the UN Human Rights Project. That's how she got connected to them. And uh, suddenly she ended up in Kazakhstan speaking the Uyghur, uh, I mean, the uh, human rights, you know, the uh, human rights project tune, the NED line on this issue. Uh, that, to me, just speaks to how there, this can't be proven, right? And, and I don't think there's going to be any developments pointing to genocide. I think it was always a political campaign, always a propaganda campaign. And in this report, that I did the stream on um, last night on the left lens. The report itself just has, I mean, I literally the word allegation and appear, they, those two words, which all indicate claims, not evidence. It's all passive voice, all indicating that they can't prove anything. Those words were used more than 60 times altogether. And that's just half of it. There are other, uh, of these qualifiers that you could find. And there's three times in the, in the paper where they literally said, well, we're not in a position to verify whether any of these claims are true. Who is in the position then? If not for a body that literally had the High Commissioner for Human Rights there visiting, there's no other, you know... It, and of course, some people apologize and say, oh, well, that's up for the good. They're just there to make suggestions and the governments are supposed to investigate. Okay, fair enough. But if you are bringing up what is a, a huge violation of international law, then there better be a body to in independently investigate it. Because, I mean, can you imagine the United States being investigated for genocide? Do you think that they will ever give you the day? They won't even count police murders in the United States. They won't do that. They haven't ever done that. They won't count them. Uh, you know, you have these uh, various independent institutions that have developed over the years doing that now because the government would never do it. The DOJ would never do it, even though it technically is their job and there's been huge pressure to have that happen. Um, but in any event, yeah, no genocide. I don't see it being provable. I don't see it developing into anything. At what point, you know, uh, could it be considered that, you know, just from my understanding of this issue, from what's happening in that region, what's happening in all of China, because chi all of China is very ethnically diverse, it, it just doesn't match up, you know. And, and I think uh, there's just so many real instances that you were citing of genocide I mean, there's genocide ongoing in the United States. Uh, could we argue that what's happening in Mississippi, given that Mississippi is 70 plus percent black American, um, and it seems like black cities tend to be afflicted with this real targeted neglect that does impact people's lives, does cause premature death, right? Not to mention the policing, not to mention mass incarceration, like, why is Malcolm X, W.E.B. Du Bois, these folks were talking, they were bringing genocide to the table at the United Nations 50s, 60s, 70s, right? <laughs> like that's, or, or 40s, 50s, 60s, I should say. So, um, you know, it is a real deflection. And I, to be honest, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of 
the reports, like I, I, I just wish there was some way. One of the huge, one of the big hopes that I have for the near future is that the work that we're all trying to do to debunk and discredit, and of course, um, build uh, movements that can put pressure to just kind of like uh, stop the both the ideological and the policy manifestations of this anti-china campaign uh, my hopes is that this will this can be reduced because it's you know that we can build big enough platform alternative platforms that can challenge this consensus that is being built on this issue which allows for these forces to continue i mean the australian strategic policy institute Literally funded U.S. government, Department of Defense, Australian Department of Defense, military contractors. You know they the, the, they're at the root of all of these uh, gross uh, lies. They literally were allowed in this report. I mean, this report should be torn up. They were allowed to have Nathan Rooser in a in a endnote be the final word on the question of whether the satellite imagery is legitimate that the ASBI took and said, oh, that's all the concentration camps. Look at them. Literally, Nathan Rooster got the last word, above and over the government of China. Like, that's how biased this all is. That's how, uh, you know, that's just how, how incredible all of this is. And, and yeah, it's really frustrating. But but anyway, you, you had me going on rants, so, so appreciate the comment and question. I'm going to get to Monica now. They've been waiting quite patiently. Uh, Monica, you're up. Uh, hi, Danny. Hello. Yeah. I'm so happy that you are back. I was wondering what happened to the cold brew because <laughs> I rely on it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was... Uh, I, I did do an episode, and I just haven't been able to publish it publicly. Uh, for those who can't make it live, because there's um, there there was a troll who came in, and I can't get it out of the transcript. Cause I don't want to publish it fine in its final form with that in it. Um, but yeah, no, I have been less consistent, so I apologize. No, with it's this okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. You always do a good work, and you do so much work for us out here. And the worldliness of the small left that we have in the United States. But um, as we was going to ask, was not, was asking about the Uyghur, which is really extremely annoying because of, um, you know, even people who don't even know what China is, let alone who the Uyghurs are, are repeating um, what they hear from the mainstream press which is basically, you know, always trying to other China, there's yellow people out there who, mm-hmm. you know, they used to not be a problem when they were using them all the time. But now that, now that China is rising, over the sudden they're becoming the boogeyman that used to be the Muslim. But that's besides the point. What I do want to ask you now is about the COVID mandates. I think last week, a gentleman in Australia asked a question in uh, Aaron Mate's show. And uh, he was annoying because 
It seems as if, and I wasn't aware of this, but it, it turns out that a lot of people, so-called lefties, are kind of going along the, the right-wing idea or somehow that the mandate was the problem during the pandemic. And that's not really my observation. What happened is, what I saw is that the government didn't really care if people live or die. They just didn't care. Um, obviously, they, they have to close down at the beginning because nobody really knew if this disease is going to kill everybody. And people were scared. I was scared. I thought that, they, you know, I didn't know nothing about bacteria or anything like that. But because that a lot of people, we rely on jobs to make money, to pay bills, to pay the rent, to pay the food. You know, the government only give us very little money, right? But then we didn't have no job, right? And then some of us, we a lot of people, especially in my neighborhood, they, they have to go to work, and, you know, and these jobs. And plus, the government forced people to go back to work in factories, but they did not give them the mask. They did not give them the protection, and a lot of people died 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 that way, right? They was dying because they went to work. It was not because there was a mandate. It was not because the government closed down the business. They did not close down the business. They they closed down the business maybe for the upper middle class or the upper classes, but for the working class, we had to go back to work, right? And then, uh, not only that, they did not give us the protection. They did not give us anything. Then you come back home, and then people got said people die. A lot of people in my Facebook group, I saw them dying. Right, and when they find out that the people who was doing the dying were mainly people of color, like black people, Latino people, then a lot of governors in all these racist states open fully the the you know, open everything because they didn't care that we the people of color were dying. That's what happened. It was not because the government shut down the. Uh, you know, that they, you know, ask people to put masks. And and then another thing that really, really got me upset is the fact that we saw white supremacists, like, like very violent white supremacists going on state capitol, brandishing their weapon, threatening to kill governors, threatening to, you know, assassinate governors. And going on the street with no mask on on big crowd, and it was tolerated. And I didn't see no police asking them to stop. So all of that created a very toxic atmosphere, where nobody was respecting a lot of elderly and a lot of disabled people died that way too. And then one last thing I want to mention that really shocked me is that. I think one governor somewhere in Texas went on television screen asking seniors basically to sacrifice themselves to kill, you know, to die over this very ruthless economy. 
I mean, I never seen people who just don't care about human life. They don't care about poor people. They don't care about disabled people. They don't care about. They only care about. I don't know who they care about. But I completely lost respect and hope in this culture of death. So that's what I wanted to say. All right. Yeah. Now you brought it back to something I mean, I haven't spoken about in a while. I mean. I don't have many disagreements uh, with you or any disagreements really about uh, what you were saying. It, this moment, you know, has, has been very frustrating because I, I also lost people. Um, many of them working class, uh, black people, Latinos, everyone that you're talking about, press nationalities, people of color. I've had many, many connections, um, you know, many, many of my connections also lose people close to them. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really tough, a tough thing to talk about though, because it has been so politicized, uh, COVID-19 and, and it's shock, you know, it's just, I think some of the bewilderment for me is that, you know, it's 2022 September, we're going on now, uh, close to to uh, what was it? Uh, end of what was it? End of December, January. The novel virus was discovered in China. I was I was there. Funny enough, when it was discovered as a novel coronavirus before it was named, and uh, yeah, that was beginning of 2020. So we're about to be at the beginning of 2023 so we're talking about three years the bewilderment for me is that the conversation has only gotten worse in the west about it um you know on the one hand like of course i'm going when it comes to anything that has to do with the, I mean, look, the United States imperialism is built on repression. The state is a, is organized repression. It is an organ, an armed body that is designed to oppress, to uh, that is designed to enforce the interests of one class at the expense of another, or you know, to in, in violently, and that includes the, a, a, anything, right? A, a, anything, everything, and anything will be used for that purpose even the things that are good things will be used for that purpose as well that, that that's the contradiction embodied in the way that this system operates just think about all the hard fought battles to get a social welfare state in in the united states what has this what what did the government do well the government said oh, you can have these some of these things but we're going to make it incredibly difficult, right? Uh, a lot of most, there's only a couple of programs that are universal. Everything else is means tested. So we're making it incredibly difficult and, and to the point where it is a violent system where people feel like they are being violently stigmatized and violently excluded and then not give, and not given enough. And, and I think that happened with the COVID-19 response in the United States. And so on the one hand, I, I, to me, I don't see, uh, like public health measures 
on their own as being acts of violence, right? Uh, You know, uh, masking, vaccines, uh, uh, quarantine measures, all this stuff has been employed in China and it's done incredible work in protecting people's lives. But when it was done in the United States, there was such a level of disorganization, neglect, and as you said, just a lack of care for human beings. It didn't matter whether people lived or died as long as profits were being made. Uh, That to me was the central problem with the entire response. And while I am not happy that the narrative went to, okay, well, the mandates don't work, the vaccines don't work, uh, this is all some sort of big agenda to like control us. I'm not happy that it necessarily went that way because I think it's much more complex. Uh, I think a lot of the things that you said are definitely true. And I also think that the manifestations of state violence that have occurred because of the pandemic were already there, right? So the intensified policing, for example, which had happened during COVID, it did affect uh, oppressed communities, poor uh, communities, people, especially uh, communities of color. Uh, that was That's real. Like, that was very real. Um, but that was, you know, it wasn't COVID-19 that was creating, that wasn't like a COVID-19 agenda. It was the fact that that has always, always existed. And now you had another crisis at, at a foot that gave the state another excuse. And surely, right, the way that the U.S. government works, its intelligence agencies, its for-profit healthcare system, all of it, all of it is designed for profit and repression. So, yes, a lot of these things that were employed are also for that. But there's one thing that's never talked about that I, that you uh, just raised for me um, as as I was thinking about what you were saying is that capitalism has to function. Now, it doesn't have to function well. It can be, we've had 40 plus years of what I think is a permanent crisis. Like, I don't think capitalism has really been healthy at any real point. There have been moments that have been better than others. But uh, the overall trajectory has been a fall in the rate of profit. Um, and the contradictions of capitalism are are pretty much set in stone, right? There, There's not going to be some kind of reversal, of course. There's not going to be any kind of real recovery or some kind of new, new deal or uh, what the World Economic Forum to, <laughs> to um, bring that up again from um, the last caller. There's, uh, from one of the, from the first caller, I should say, uh, there's not going to be a fourth industrial revolution for capitalism. There isn't. There's not going to be a fourth industrial revolution. Um, the system is declining. It's decrepit. It's failing. It's uh, unraveling. And uh, these capitalists don't really want to invest in anything. And whatever they invest in, it immediately turns into, I mean, look what's happened to social media, right? Immediately, immediately turns into highly concentrated monopolies that eventually also want to stop investing, right? They also want to stop creating new capital. They're not creating more jobs, aren't creating anything. They're just sitting atop wealth and trying to gobble up as much market share as possible with the help of the banks and, of course, with the help of the military state. 
that's the stage of capitalism we are in. And so that system needs to function, though, even in its current very fragile, uh, while at the same time violent form. And so on the one, yeah, you could argue forever and a day that COVID-19 measures in the U.S. and the West had a repressive element to them. That wouldn't be completely and entirely untrue. But there's another element to it as well that people don't under that often don't understand is that COVID-19 did create a crisis. You had the potential where workers could not work for the threat of death. And that uh, both necessitated forcing working class people to work throughout this pandemic without any kind of structure in place or system in place or services in place or any kind of resources in place to protect them. So they just died, right? I mean, indigenous people, black people all saw life expectancy decline far greater than the the general average, right? So that happened and continues to happen. And then you had to have also, uh, you couldn't have a fully open society. I mean, you could look, point, some people point to Sweden and said they were open since the beginning, and if you look at their death numbers per capita, et cetera, it's really bad, really bad what happened. <laughs> a lot of older people, a lot of disabled people, a lot of just people uh, also uh, died uh, on a per capita basis. But, um, you know, there was a, a real attempt, I think, to both stabilize the system and also run away with what could be run away with. And so there was a huge wealth transfer uh, that happened through uh, the you know the CARES Act and then subsequent you know stimulus etc. That was a huge upward transfer of wealth, and then you also had uh, these very just haphazard, kind of desperate, kind of panicked uh, uh, COVID nineteen responses. You had month long, uh, you could call it lockdown. It was kind of like semi lockdowns. Um, you you had these haphazard responses because one, the the United States had no public health system that could come up with a real plan to mitigate, protect, uh, stop the spread, etc. No plan, and also the measures that were announced, as you said, only targeted yeah targeted just a section, a layer of uh, uh, the uh, 99%, you could say. So a lot of working class people still had to work, but even that wasn't enough, and it still scared investors and the capitalists silly, and they crashed the system in order to facilitate an upward transfer of wealth. And so under these kind of desperate conditions, I've, I've, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I can't even talk about this anymore because it gets so to me needlessly um needlessly intense need, needlessly uh politicized and vitriolic and and you know there's a lot of there's just a lot of strong emotion to this and i think a lot of that is because this was such a hard time and the politicization of this was so intense the ruling class was really able to funnel ideologically you know people in all kinds of different directions isolation really does a number on our mental health. And uh, I think, unfortunately, Americanism, right, uh, uh, kind of ruled the day. 
and was able to win out over any kind of, you know, any kind of rational discussion. You know, from the very beginning, my, and I still, I'm still on this, from the very beginning, my hope was that more people would look at China or even Venezuela being on Jimmy Dore's show and being like, Venezuela is paying people. Venezuela is protecting people. Venezuela is putting in public health measures. Now, they're not going to look the same everywhere because everyone's conditions are different, right? Nicaragua, Venezuela are not the same as China. You're not going to have the same responses, but you're going to have responses that take into account, you know, health and the seriousness of a pandemic, as well as the fact that people need to live. And none of that was ever addressed here. And so there is a lot of understandable resentment, suspicion. But I do think that this issue has gotten very simplistic and has turned into what I can't stand, which are conversations about like, are you for freedom or are you not? Are you authoritarian or are you for freedom? It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, are you kidding me with this? Authoritarian versus freedom? Like, individually, no, let's talk about the fact that people's economic livelihoods have been devastated. More than a million people. I mean, we're, we're going to be headed up to a million plus. People have died. Uh, the, the conditions of people have, been deterior, have deteriorated. You have no public health system in this country. Like, come on, give me a break with this freedom versus no freedom. Like, what about collective freedom? What about uh, what about the need for that, right? What about the need to take care of all each other? How do we take care of each other, right? We don't have to agree on, uh, uh, you know, how the government did vaccines, how the government did uh, quarantines and lockdowns. Sure, I'm. It wasn't good. None of it was good. Right? None of the way that that it happened was uh, ideal. But then again, the question should be, well, how do we collectively address something like this? Because pandemics are real problems. These are real public health crises. There's going to be more of them. And uh, the more intolerable, the more uh, volatile the system becomes, the more that the conditions for future pandemics are sown. And so... You know, I think it's a legitimate question of, well, how do socialists, how do communists, how do leftists talk about this, right? What are, what are the things that we need? What's the positive message? What's the demand? What's the movement, right? And I just don't see that conversation being had. And so, yeah, uh, this has been a very frustrating topic for me um, as well, Monica. So appreciate uh, appreciate your call. I'm going to get to Ian. They've been waiting for quite a bit. So, Ian, you are the next caller. Hey, Danny. Hi. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to hit you with this subject, but uh, um, so, yeah, I was I was actually in the, the particular call-in that uh, Monica was talking about, and uh, the, the speaker uh, that, that she mentioned or the caller, I, I, I kind of got pretty hardcore triggered by this guy, but, um, and... Yeah, I totally understand the, the the dance around something that's so politicized. And what's difficult then is if you make an issue toxic, then it by default kind of like seeds itself to like the kind of more aggressive faction. And 
um, like as kind of, even almost as like as a I don't know I don't want to say a metaphor but um, a case study perhaps of I guess like our whole system um, like COVID is actually a pretty good example and what was kind of crazy was there was basically a, a silence or an absence of like basically like left vision or left solutions. And so I'll tell you this, like you might, maybe you felt this way a little bit too, but at the beginning, maybe I wasn't quite the cynic that I am now, but I basically felt this may be a jump off point for, you know, America or human civilization to like up their game. We have a challenge, we can meet it and we can be better off for it. And so this is the like this is the scenario that obviously didn't happen, but we should really remind ourselves that it could have if choices were different. And that was like COVID is like recognized in China. America takes it seriously from the get go. They like start like trying to contain it and like the U.S. as well as Western countries and throughout the global south come together to create basically an international plan, how to like contain it and deal with it and prevent like in inequities from occurring. Then once it comes to the United States, like the CDC, like rapidly, like starts using the tests that China created instead of trying to like have some intellectual property win with a, a broken test system that doesn't work immediately do, you know, what, you know, public health would dictate, which, which would be contact tracing and then like, you know, isolating sick people. And we could have done this all in a way that strengthened our cooperation and camaraderie with other cultures and gave us an opportunity to learn, especially from China and also the rest of Pacific Asia. We could have even dodged. I mean, I, I hate to, call, I don't, wouldn't even call them lockdowns, but like if you, you know, kind of watch the case studies of like New Zealand, Australia and China, you know, these kind of like measures worked if you implemented them very fast. But when things are already out of control, you know, basically it's a half measure that just makes life worse, you know, flatten the curve. But eventually everybody's going to get sick and it's going to come at an economic cost. All of this could have been avoided, again, by another opportunity of expanding public health. Like, like even like Bernie Sanders should have been pushing the hell out of like Medicare mm -hmm. for all in the you know 2020 like primary election. And there were so many opportunities to meet this from a left or socialist as well as an internationalist perspective, which would have been an amazing win. Our lives would have become better. And now what we have is basically a retrenchment into all our worst habits where we're now going to accept a lower standard of living, a lower standard of health, fewer worker protections and a lower uh, lifespan in the United States. Yeah. And like, I mean, I can bitch about that, but I just want people to think like there was an alternative. And the next time like something like this happens, I, I mean, cho different choices can be made. If we're not so attached, you know, to, you know, per, you know, uh, prolonging this kind of exploitative system. That's what yeah. I would say. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> if this is the topic that uh, you and others want to talk about, I'm I'm here for it. You know, I I I, uh, I yeah. I mean, one of the things that you made me think about was, um, you know, there's always a contradiction between the collective and the individual. Uh, even, you know, under socialism, that contradiction exists. Of course, that contradiction is not in the same form. It doesn't look the same. Uh, but, of course, we're still dealing with uh, the old mode versus the new mode. And... So, you know, socialism, of course, though, uh, places the collective uh, at the forefront, right? And, and so a lot of people who are on the left who say, for the working class or for the working class, uh, they're, without that vision, as you said, right, if it's a socialist vision, I mean, you know, I, I, I use communism and socialism kind of interchangeably because for me, they're not just ideologies. They're literal. They're they're um, a trajectory, right? They're a development path, um, and so, uh, and I think that's just the hard science of uh, development and of human development. But uh, nonetheless, it, it, there was that lack of vision, and with COVID. Um, you know, you had me thinking, and now I'm losing my train of thought, but I think uh, for me that that schism exists, but oftentimes how I felt, no matter where we are on the political spectrum, and this is how I felt about how I've always felt also about like anti surveillance, for example, right? Like about uh, those who are against surveillance and, and who are. Uh, pro-civil liberties like i'm of course right a, a staunch opponent of u.s government surveillance and the intelligence agencies and all of that I, there's nothing in my work and anything i've said or done that could uh, uh prove otherwise but at the same time a lot of that opposition started and had largely stayed in a place that, let's say, a fellow like Edward Snowden was in. And while I always defend Edward Snowden and say he should not have to live in Moscow if he doesn't want to, of course, but he shouldn't have to live there because if he didn't, he would be in a U.S. maximum security prison or dead or both at some point. Um, of course, always defend Snowden for, for what he did, and, and that's the principle contradiction and issue but at the same time politically right snowden was not an activist he was a you know a leftist he wasn't somebody who uh, was into movement politics he was really into getting the information out there but the politics that did dominate and that has dominated since arguably the war on terror and we're getting close to 9-11 now since uh, the institution of the Patriot Act and these very draconian surveillance policies, that the political opposition to that has largely taken, and this isn't everybody, has largely taken, though, in the main a uh, 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 libertarian form, a kind of um, individualistic form where uh, individual civil liberties are prioritized. 
And that's oh, and that's not a bad thing. But then again, that only addresses one side of the contradiction. If we only address one side of a contradiction, then we're likely to end up in political places we don't want to be in, or maybe we do want to be in. And so for me, right, for like the example of China, people hate when I say this. They're like, how could you defend any kind of surveillance? You're authoritarian. I had Ryan Christian. This guy, obviously, I don't think really likes me over at The Last American Vagabond. I mean, like, uh, I don't mind him. He seems like a decent guy. I know he's done some very hard work, but I don't agree with his politics. I just don't, and that's okay. And, um, you know, people say, oh, how could you defend, like, the way that China doesn't allow social media into its uh, Western social media, into its system? I'm like, well, have you seen what Western social media does on all levels, but especially at the level of, like, literally acting as an arm of the intelligence and military state? Um, Perhaps that's a big reason. I mean... Social media and a lot of Western, like Google and uh, Internet, all that stuff was banned in the 1990s, beginning of the 1990s, because of what happened in Tiananmen Square. That was a big reason for a clampdown on the media because Western media did play a very negative role in trying to institute a color revolution. So nonetheless, you know, we have to look at all sides of the contradiction. And for me, when it comes to COVID, very little attention has been put on, like, what do we do collectively? No one's looking at what China did, what Cuba did, what a lot of countries did, even New Zealand, as much as uh, I'm not, a, 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 a very much, uh, I, I very much dislike Arden for her imperialist foreign policy and smug uh, uh, Western imperialist elitism. But at the same time, New Zealand did a far better job than, let's say, the United States in in approaching COVID. And, and I think you know, this attention to the collective is something that's very much missing, not just on this issue, but on most. But I think on this issue, it came up very, 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 um, uh, you know, just incredibly, just like in our face. It, it's just an extreme example of where we needed the ability. We needed collective institutions, mass institutions. We needed a government that served the people and we were t- we we saw up close on a very mass scale rather than just targeted it, rather than just really but in a very direct way in a global way because it was a global problem uh, just how much this government is organized against us and uh, you know I, I i'm not surprised that that would lead to kind of a a turn inward, which is what I think a lot of people have unfortunately done with this issue, is that they'll turn inward, they'll focus on on individual liberties only, without attention to, you know, the seriousness of collective problems like pandemics that do require collective responses, right? They do. Um, So anyway, uh, thanks for that. Ian, I think, you know, you raise a lot of just very basic points. It's hard not to chuckle after each one of them because it's like, yeah, these these seem so simple, but yet it's so far away. And, you know, things like public health measures that do require a level of collectivity and perhaps, right, even, uh, 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 
you know, when you comes to something like contact tracing, there will there can be some breaches of privacy with contact tracing. But if you have a government that has literally breached your privacy in order to steal your data, to track you, surveil you, to try to call you a terrorist, maybe criminally indict you, maybe throw you indefinitely in, in, in a military detention indefinitely just because they think you're a terrorist, like that stuff happens, kill you because you're a whistleblower, etc. When you live in a society like that, and then um, you also live in a society where not only surveillance do that, the repressive aspects, but there's a lot of profiteering off of our data. You decide like that, then yeah, like of course you're gonna have a lot of suspicions about contact tracing, and it could very well lead into a rabbit hole. Um, but you know, how do we then collectively protect ourselves from pandemics? How do we isolate sick people in pandemics? And and I don't care what people say now. People want to say, oh, it's not that bad now. Whatever, 3,000 people died, I think, in the first 10 days of September. That Maybe that's not as much as before, but we got a million We got a million deaths on our hands. So, And they were very rapid in the beginning of this thing. People seem to just forget that. If that were to happen again, how do we, right? How do we do this? How, how do we pay attention to the collective, protect the collective? How do we do that? And that goes for everything. That goes also for policing. Like, we need community control of the police. We need community organization to protect each other. We need some institutional builder. That will exist under socialism, too. We will need to defend the interests of people from those who seek to uh, undermine it. Like, that's that will be the case under socialism. There's police in Cuba and China, although they don't hold guns like they do here in the U.S. But they exist, and that's because they exist for a different purpose than, let's say, cops here to protect private property. But nonetheless, um, very good question. All right, guys, um, it's getting late. I'm going to depart very soon. Um, I, before, um, let's see. Um, I do have one more caller in here. Hold on one second. I see them. Uh, oop, getting a little derailed here. All right, I'll let this caller in. Um, this is probably my last one. Um, all right, next caller, you are in. Breathe, breathe. What's your name? Okay. Are you there, caller? Hello. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so I was hoping to maybe wrap up your conversation with uh, something like all of this stuff always kind of comes back to uh, like the idea of disaster capitalism by mm-hmm. Naomi Klein for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it seems to be, yeah, I mean, like the nice thing is that it kind of dispels the ideas of, of uh, like conspiracy theories and whatnot. Cause it doesn't matter whether this stuff is planned or whether it's not planned. It's like these these disasters or like these economic shocks that we keep experiencing, like COVID, things like that, you know. Uh, it just kind of makes the pyramid of capitalism get steeper. You know, it's like the more people get at the top, get richer, and there's more of us at the bottom, more of us getting poorer and more of us becoming poor, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just kind of thinking, sorry, I was kind of losing my train of thought. No, I was just kind of thinking, like, I mean, what do you, what do you kind of feel is like hopeful trajectory? I mean, I know it comes to people like Chris Hedges, 
like some of the only things he seems to have hope in is like Shama Sawant, you know, certain people like that, or, uh, mm. you know, all of these labor strikes and unionizations of, of laborers. I'm just wondering, like, is there anything else you can think that might be hopeful to kind of get us towards that sort of trajectory to where we're more, you know, more socially respectable to each other, get to more of like socialist situation? Mm. Mm hmm. Okay, yeah, I think that's a good place to end. So thanks uh, for for the question. Um, yeah, so you know, I'll end on this comment and uh, stick around. I will do some housekeeping, so some announcements uh, after uh, this. I answer this question. It's a good one. What gives me hope? There are multiple things that give me hope right now. One uh, definitely is the labor activity. You know, I, I do part-time. I work part-time as a therapist under uh, someone's practice as a way to kind of, um, I did social work and, you know, as a, my profession, quote unquote, in my work and uh, um, couldn't quit all the way because needed the income to some degree. So I still, I'm still doing that. And I have many clients who are getting involved in labor activity, labor organizing. I have friends doing it. I have, you know, there there are very few people I know now. Uh, I'm not going to give myself all the credit for this, uh, but there are very few people I know. Some I, I would say I have had an influence because of my history, both in you know political education, media but also doing labor, organizing, anti-war organizing. I would say it's some influence, but a lot of this is based there on, on a lot of their own experiences and they're getting involved. And I find that to be very encouraging. And uh, while the challenges are enormous because places like Starbucks, Trader Joe's, Amazon, I mean, we're talking about these huge monopolies that uh, are – they kind of have the capacity to do whatever the hell they want. And even when the workers are able to get victories, uh, those victories are met with very uh, a very large backlash. That's hard to, that's hard to defend against and, and hard to move forward against. So I do think that that kind of activity, though, is, to me feels like it's only set to intensify because... Uh, the economic situation is becoming so untenable. It's becoming very untenable. And I think that now what I am actually hopeful about, and maybe uh, this, maybe you call me naive about this, but I do think it's been a good thing. As, as painful as it's been for me to navigate as an analyst, as a, a, a person in the media, leftist in the media, socialist in doing indie media, it's very difficult to navigate all the troubled waters that we've talked about in this episode, from COVID to everything. Every issue has this, right? Uh, I talk mostly about China and who the hell on the left, other than a very tiny few, are willing to even engage on that subject. And when they do, sometimes it's not very good, right? Like that... Uh, uh, it's not been easy. But one thing that I have thought about over the course of this period, especially you could say the COVID-19 era, or even the post-Bernie Sanders era, post-2020 era, I would say that it's a good thing 
that Bernie Sanders, and now it seems like this happening to the squad, that their legitimacy and their lack of being a solution under this disaster capitalist and uh, terminal, like imperialist stage, right? That the fact that they don't offer the solutions that people thought they did, I think has been a good thing, but it's caused in the immediate an incredible amount of confusion. I mean, we don't have a social democracy in the United States. We don't have a social democratic governance system. We don't have social democratic anything. And so a lot of forces that, were moving in a social democratic direction. Like, oh, we want to be like Europe, where a lot of people who are progressives have that mentality, are now not only watching how those forces that thought would get them there have unraveled and to the point of actually standing with the establishment in many areas, but now they're watching Europe unravel. And so I find this moment actually full of hope because I do have trust in working class people and their allies. Cause not all working class people are going to be revolutionaries and not all revolutionaries are going to be working class. I have faith that I have hope and faith in them and their allies to uh, figure this out, to recognize, right. It's a, in, to some degree that will cause, a political rupture, um, a, another moment where a mass movement emerges, another opportunity for us to shape and give it direction. But I, I do have hope in that. I think that it will likely probably be spontaneous again as like Occupy, Movement for Black Lives, right? Both of those ended up not, you know, turning into almost like Democratic Party projects in the dominant sense but they did begin spontaneously in terms of people's anger and standing up and um, creating a new political conversation or altering the political conversation in ways that, you know, I think has made a big difference in shaping what will happen in the future and how we talk about things and how we act on things. So I do have hope that that will happen and that it will build off of what has already been happening around labor. And I do think that, you know, there is something, you know, something about this moment feels like a precipice. And and so I do have, um, I do have hope that that precipice, when it comes to like Europe's crisis coming up, when it comes to, the state of the economic situation, all of these things feels like a precipice, feels like something that can't remain the same. And so I do have hope that there will be an element of a movement in our context uh, that will push things forward. So I do also think, though, that what's likely to continue to happen and this is maybe harder to swallow, maybe harder to be hopeful for, but I am someone who consider who who thinks that you know the revolution must be global, the world, any kind of socialism has to have a global component, and that that's where progress will really lie. I, I do believe that we are in a more hopeful stage than maybe a lot of people understand right now in that sense. 
And so when it comes, that's why I talk about or focus on and try to bring back to this new Cold War, because for me, the new Cold War is still a struggle between systems. And while it doesn't look like the 20th century, it still has a big, huge socialist element to it because China is huge and socialist. It also has Russia, which, yes, it's a mixed economy, but it has a very staunch uh, 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 fight for self-determination and sovereignty built in its resistance to empire. Like that's a that's that's very real and very much the case. Whether you want to argue it's because to do that, whether you want to argue that it's independent. You know, it, it it has to do with Russia politically, you know, its own internal politics. I think it's a combination of both. But nonetheless, you know, you have that and then you have smaller countries also fighting back hard, <laughs> like really hard and, and making real gains uh, despite the suffering and despite the exploitation, despite the warmongering, despite the sanctions, Right, that exists despite this endless war campaign of the United States and its allies. Uh, these countries are, you know, there's more than a few in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, uh, all across the world, right? Um, that are, I think, fighting for something that we both can be hopeful about and also join in on, which is a multipolar world and also. A, a world free from imperialism. And I, and I am very hopeful about that struggle because there are just some inevitabilities with it that one point to real progress being made no matter what the United States does within its limitations. And two, should the United States and its allies get really trigger happy with a potential nuclear war, I do have confidence that those countries, especially Russia, China and Russia, on the other side of that, are not only more rational, but also would know how to handle such a situation that will be in the, to the benefit of humanity, I think that puts us in a good position. And so, while I don't want to sound like an accelerationist, I am certainly not here advocating that, okay, things are going to get worse, so that makes things better. That means we'll be in a better position. But I do think this is truly in my heart of hearts. I do believe that one, it's not about being accelerationist. That's the trend, right? We're in a race to the bottom. This is endless austerity, endless war. You said it, disaster capitalism. That's endless austerity. That is about creating conditions to uh, gobble up and profit from everything. Everything from uh, disasters of its making to disasters not of its making, but it's going to try to profit, try to extract, try to enrich the capitalists um, no matter what. So, you know, that is the reality. So it's not for me about being accelerationist. It's about being clear about we know that things are going to get worse. We know things are getting worse right now. Look at I haven't watched some videos about people in Mississippi turn on their water and it made me want to vomit, you know, like people are dying for these kind of reasons, state violence and the economic situation for so many people is getting worse and worse and worse for so many. It was already horrific. 
you have this world hunger, this poverty, this extreme poverty that's rising across the world because of the way that imperialism is prioritizing war, prioritizing privatization and monopoly. And so that's the reality. But out of that reality, I think, has already come a lot of resistance. And so globally, I see that resistance being more advanced. So in Latin America, we know that there's already been gains in the last several years from Bolivia overturning the coup, Nicaragua re-electing Daniel Ortega, right? There's been reversals, and we're probably going to see it in Brazil with Lula in Africa, despite the dire situation of the continent. Look at the unity against this imperialist proxy war in Ukraine that African countries have shown. You also have a small Eritrea, you have Ethiopia standing up to U.S. imperialism. You have, um, you know, all across Asia, you have countries not going along with this new Cold War agenda. You have even U.S. allies like South Korea, despite electing a the furthest right president you could think of in this very moment, despite that, still hesitating, still not going fully on board with what the U.S. imperialist agenda is. So I think that there is hope that the empire is actually much weaker than it appears and that the world situation is more favorable than it appears. And for me, that gives me a lot of hope. And so, you know, I do think that despite this moment of, you know, I think out of multipolar, the reason why it's a multipolar world right now is because there's a lot of, there's just been a lot of mess made by unipolarity, by imperialist hegemony led by the United States. It created some of the worst decades known to humanity beginning in 1991 after the Soviet Union fell. And so, yeah, it's not like the hope that, you know, the I think the hope that I have feels contradictory in and of itself because it's a hope based upon an existing situation which has formidable challenges in front of it. And... I think that sometimes what happens, though, and I try to think about it like this as well, and I hope this helps, is that sometimes we on the left, (laughs) this is probably an understatement of the century, we on the left love to romanticize things. Uh, And I think that's a Western thing. I think in the West, the socialist and communist movement have been so infiltrated, so disorganized, there's been so many challenges, so many, so much heartbreak, pain, sectarianism, bad blood, ideological failures, just so many, so many challenges to the socialist movement in the West that have not been overcome in the slightest. And I think that what's happened, and I know a lot of socialists, and I know a lot of communists, you know, uh, I think what happens is that history can be romanticized, right? And so we have this idea of the 20th century. And I held this. This is how I became politicized. I held this view of like, 
you know, you had Soviet Union, you had China, you had a third of the world fighting for socialism, and it was it was a wonderful time. And indeed, people's lives improved mightily in the socialist bloc across the world. But it came it came from immense suffering. I mean, challenge that I don't think in wars and I mean Korea, right? The Korean War, Vietnam, uh, the Batista dictatorship, uh, World War One, World War Two. I mean, we're talking about just mass graves being produced in these wars, and that's just some of it. I mean, the independence movements in the Africa. All of them were very bloody. Uh, what the UK, what what the British Empire did in Kenya, very bloody. Uh, not all of it was bloody, um, or at least as bloody as, let's say, the war, the war of aggression in Vietnam. But a lot of it was bloody. Algeria, lots of death, lots of repression, lots of torture and suffering. So, for me, it's. I try to, when we look at the positives in this moment, it will always be accompanied by the oppression, the exploitation of this system until this system is put to rest. So I hope that my hope when I say that it has this duality to it is not seen as some kind of like, well, okay, it's not enough. So the history is not as optimistic as we thought. Actually, I think the more sober we are about where we are in this moment of history actually points to, well, the only way change can really happen is out of this suffering. The only way that people rising up can only happen is out of this suffering because it's here. It just doesn't let up on its own. And that was also the case in the 20th century when there was a stronger, you could say, world socialist movement. And now I'm starting to think to myself after being in China, after um, learning about China more and learning about just how stable it is, I start to think, well, was it more? Was socialism more favorable in the 20th century versus now? So, so that's kind of, these are the questions that I've been asking myself. Um, and trying to do investigation around and trying to shape when I'm looking at news, right? How, what kind of lens am I coming? I, I, I do a show on YouTube called The Left Lens. What kind of lens am I employing? And and I think that that's where my, my hope resides is in the fact that resistance is happening now globally and at smaller levels. And that the untenable character of this system, the crises that it finds itself in is going to lead to mass response. And that will be our opportunity to, to build, right. To build. And, and, and those opportunities exist now and they exist, will exist in the future. And so that's where my hope resides. All right. I've been rambling long enough, everybody. Um, housekeeping really quickly. Uh, tomorrow night live. There's a lot of topics. So uh, on the left lens, not here. So if you follow me on YouTube um, at the left lens, I can also send that <clears throat> link. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to my channel. Um, I will share that in 
the chat. But I'll go live. I, I've been going live at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific for the most part. But you'll know when I go live. So there's my channel sent in the chat. Um, I am moving. It sucks. Again. <laughs> Second time. Two years. I have to move. Quality of life issues. There's construction right on my window. My wife works overnight. There's no way we can do it. We got to move or we're going to go absolutely insane. Got to love it. Um, my rent is set to go up because of this. At 300 400 per month. So that's going to be a rough hit. So anyway, if you do appreciate my work, support my work, um, please do support me at Patreon, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can find that in the link in my profile here on Colin. So please do support me there um, if you can. And uh, what else? I feel like there were other announcements. Um, oh, um, there is. So I'm going to be going live tomorrow. I'm going to try to do also a 9/11 stream. I've been trying to get guests. It's been hard. I'm also going through a redesign on left lens and maybe here as well. Um, a whole redesign for all of my social media as well as, but all my content. Um. So keep a lookout for that. But uh, but yeah, no, tomorrow probably talk about some stories I haven't been able to get to. Ukraine stories. There's also stories, Syria, oil theft. There's a lot of stuff that I haven't been able to get to because things have been so intense. Uh, I've had to address the Xinjiang report. I was away. Um, And then last word, you know, it's interesting. A lot of questions generally come up. This is kind of the nature, I guess, of online. One thing I just want to announce is that, like, I don't see myself as having real beefs with anyone. I have big disagreements, right? So people brought up Jackson and everyone. Like, I have disagreements on certain issues, but I don't tend to engage in that kind of thing. So I'll I'll talk about the ideas. I'll certainly talk about that, but I generally like to keep my work about getting the message out and, um, you know, I really deplored, I really hated how during COVID, a lot of media content on YouTube, podcasts, became about talking about other people's stuff. I found that very interesting because in my opinion, this is my last word, in my opinion, I think what's more needed more now is actually people coming together, creating media projects right, institution building, like, we need that more, so if we agree on things, like, we need to be doing more of that, if we, like, anti-imperialism, like, I think we need an anti-imperialist media network, definitely, um, we're not going to agree on everything, but at least we should have that, right, consolidate resources, etc., um, and I get it, uh, Ian said beefs are for clicks, yeah, people want to build their brands, I, I certainly want to build up a following, it's hard. It really is hard um, the way that these corporations have us siloed. So, um, but I tend not to engage in talking about other people's content. I will talk about their ideas. Um, you know, if they have certain ideas, I don't think those ideas are their property. 
I've also found that very funny, right? Like a concept of socialist patriotism. It's someone's property. Give me a fucking break with that. We have been dealing with patriotic ideology in the United States since for century, you know, for more than two centuries now. Like, I don't think it's anyone's property except for the class that uh, ultimately spread that ideology. <laughs> it might be their quote-unquote property, but ideology can't really be property. It's 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 different in form. Um, but it's not anyone, the individual's property. So if someone has misgivings about covid or patriotism or anything to me it's not their it's not their ideology yeah sure they're saying it but so has many other people every you know many other people who um and it all has a source right so for me i don't get into it but you know of course always feel free to bring ideas it's not like i'm here to be like oh i don't debate or i don't no i will share my disagreements uh, but I tend not to make it personal because, look, I tend to like a lot of the people or have liked at least a lot of the people that um, I may have some disagreements with. And, uh, you know, I respect a lot of their work. And that's just that's just the the end, uh, uh, the end of that for me. Um, all right, everybody. Well, good show. Been on for 90 minutes now. Should get out of here. Uh, good to be with all of you. Have a good night. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning into Cold War Brew. Of course, subscribe if you're not subscribed here. And of course, uh, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can find that link in the description of my profile. You know, you can support me there. I will be live tomorrow on the left lens. Find that link in the chat. Make sure you subscribe to my channel. Uh, big ups to everyone who already is. Help me get to 1 million views, which is great. Um, and yeah, for everyone who's been supporting my work there as well. All right, everyone take care. Peace out.